Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, my name is Tracy Morgan, your um, host, and um, I'm very pleased to have with us today an author who um, we have been trying to find a time to do this interview, um, and uh, we finally have done it, although we're concerned about the um, a little bit of static in the background, but we decided to go ahead. We're speaking between New York um, and Israel. You're in Tel Aviv, uh, Aner? Yes, I am. Okay, and so today we have, and uh, help me out with the pronunciation, um, should I say Aner Govrin? Yeah, or? that's perfect. Okay, good. <laughs> I have a lot of Israeli friends in New York. I've, like, I've developed, the, developed the ear, and we're going to be speaking with him about um, his 2016 uh, Rutledge publication entitled Conservative and Radical Perspectives on Psychoanalytic Knowledge, The Fascinated and the Disenchanted. Um, I enjoyed this book very much, and I think that um, there's a lot, a lot of people are going to want to sort of read it who are interested in sociology of knowledge and sort of how has psychoanalysis um, found itself uh, in the position it's it's currently in? Um, and very few people look at our field in the way in which I think you you do uh, in this book. So um, we want, we'll begin with the usual question that we ask every author, um, which is what uh, motivated you um, or drove you or <laughs> however you want to put it um, to write this book? Well, you know, I... Um I've always been um, a fascinated analyst, yes. and I've always been a troubled analyst, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means um, I was very fascinating, uh, fascinated by the theories I learned at the 19th, when I started my learning at the uh, MA at Tel Aviv University. And um, it was a period when the psychodynamic approach was dominated by uh, the uh, object relation theory. Mm-hmm. And it uh, fascinated me, the, uh, the text, the theories, the, uh, the profound thinking of the human psyche, how mm-hmm. they, they understand and how did they convey, um, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the unconscious and what we saw in our patients. And uh, it explained a lot of things that were, without that, it was so confusing to understand, and it was so, uh, you know, um, tantalizing to give a profound meaning to our patients, but not only to our patients, but also to, um, to myself, to my friends, to my family. You know, we began to speak in psychoanalytic uh, language, uh, animal character and projection, and this friend has a grandiose self, and this friend is <laughs> this, this other friend is splitting, and we became uh, I became immersed like like mm-hmm. all all of my uh, other colleagues in the language, mm-hmm. and I think that's what happens to most um, people that are you know um, starting to learn the um, 
the psychoanalytic uh, language and the psychoanalytic theory, and I became fascinated by that. Um, and also, um, I started uh, my analytic training, uh, so the fascination became, you know, um, a huge thing in my life, uh, the love for psychoanalysis. But at the same time, I was also troubled by what I saw in the psychoanalytic community. Um, I saw that people are not critical about the theories. They sort of uh, take them for granted. They uh, are very loyal to the theories. Um, many people learn one theories for their entire professional life. And so I was sort of, you know, troubled by that. And uh, I didn't want to be immersed in, uh, totally immersed and to lose my free thought. Uh, so I guess I became more, um, uh, both, both fascinated and troubled. And I wanted to understand uh, the deep reasons for fascinations and for being troubled uh, in, inside the community. So um, I also wanted to understand why psychoanalysis is so, um, you know, um, so successful. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds strange because many people think that it's dying, but I, I really don't think so. I, I, I think it's a successful discipline. You make a very bold statement, actually, early, uh, I think early in the book, that um, psychoanalysis is, quote, one of the most successful intellectual enterprises in the history of Western thought. Mm -hmm. I had a moment when I read that, I thought, I don't know that I've ever read anyone else who has just put, you know, sort of just, just said that. And I, I was like, you know, I, I would have to agree. Yeah, but nevertheless, the field does remain, on the one hand, under siege, and on the other hand, as you say, there's, it continues to thrive. Yes, well, I know it sounds strange because, you know, most people don't, don't uh, um, identify psychoanalysis with success. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called the impossible <laughs> profession, right? <laughs> that's right. It's, it's like that. The heyday is, is sort of over when um, it's not today. Uh, but... Yeah. I think you should judge a discipline if it's successful or not, not when it's not on its heyday, not when it's fashionable to believe in it, mm -hmm. but on the, on the contrary, when you know when uh, people uh, um, when it has difficulties, when it is in a crisis. Um, now, if you look at other disciplines at the time uh, when psychoanalysis was evolved, many of them just vanished. They don't exist today. So I ask myself, what, why is it so well? Um, how, how did it survive? What is the, the key to understand its strength? And um, the, the main thesis of the book is that its strength is because it has um, two kinds of communities. Mm -hmm. um, there are the fascinated community which is those uh, people, those communities, those groups that believe in uh, one theory, like Klein theory or Bion theory or mm -hmm. Freud or ego psychology or Lacan mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. self-psychology. 
and they are very loyal to their uh, theory and they work their entire professional life with that one theory, although some of them, you know, combine uh, other theories too. Mm-hmm. And beside them, uh, there are also the troubled communities. These are uh, groups and people that are not satisfied with the state of knowledge and they want to uh, change that knowledge. And they continually uh, update the theory and make it uh, improve the theory and are very creative and think of new, um, new techniques and new uh, conceptualizations. And these two mm-hmm. communities, the, the fascinated community and the, um, um, the troubled communities, although there is a lot of tension between them and they often do not like each other, um, right. uh, they, they really um, help um, sustain the psychoanalytic knowledge and the psychoanalytic discipline. And they, mm-hmm. they, um, they evolve it, they develop it, uh, they dedicate their entire life to, um, to its um, uh, elaboration. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the main reasons that uh, psychoanalysis is still thriving today. Mm-hmm. Because of the tension between the two communities? Is that your idea? That, exactly. That, te- that exactly. the tension is generative? Exactly. One community is very loyal to the main theory, uh, resist to change, and um, uh, but but are not static. You know, they keep developing the the theory in in their own original uh, uh, format. Like if you mm-hmm. you, you see the Kleinian theory or the self psychologist, mm-hmm. um, the self psychology today is much is, is richer and much more varied than at times of coat and you can say mm-hmm. the same thing about the Kleinian theory and, mm-hmm. and every uh, Klein, and every psychoanalytic school. But alongside mm-hmm. these communities are troubled communities which update the theory and take, take it to, um, um, to new um, to new in, um, to, to new uh, paths, develop it. <laughs> Could you name for the listeners, I mean, I, when you talk about the troubled communities, in the book you talk about scientifically troubled, meaning those, uh, those analysts who say, you know, how come we're not doing more research to prove, you know, that what we, what we do is, you know, has a scientific basis, so they're scientifically troubled, and there are philosophically troubled communities. Can you give us some names of people or, or you know, groups that you would uh, uh, associate with the with those that are troubled, so that the yes. audience gets a better sense. Yes, yeah. for, uh, of course. There are three kinds of troubled communities that are active in sci- the psychoanalytic world. First of all, and the most important, is the new psychoanalytic schools. So every psychoanalytic school is first a troubled community. Like Klein was a troubled analyst. She was not satisfied with the Freudian theory, Shows, show, so she invented and developed a new kind of theory, the Klein theory. So every psychoanalytic school starts as a troubled community, and then after a while, uh, the, um, the founder and the followers became uh, a fascinated community. 
and see. they and they are you know uh, sort of uh, um, fixated on 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 their solutions and on their technique. That's mm-hmm. one kind of uh, uh, troubled community. The, there are two other uh, troubled communities. The scientifically troubled communities. You can see that in um, um, in um, analysts or psychodynamic therapists that are mostly work in universities and um, make research, and they uh, strongly believe that the future of psychoanalysis is in empirical research, and mm-hmm. uh, they're doing a very uh, important job in in in, in trying to um, verify uh, the psychoanalytic theory. And they also, these are, this is the group that also um, make uh, efficient, you know, the, how, how efficient is the psychoanalytic technique and psychodynamic therapist. And they're right. sort of uh, our bridge to uh, academic psychology. Uh-huh. There, are, there are also two important scientifically troubled communities with the, the infant research. Yes. Uh, people like uh, Daniel Stern and B.B. and Lachman and uh, mm-hmm. Lou Sander. Um, um, which they think is you have to verify what happens between uh, infants and their mothers, not just in theory and not just in the clinical encounter, but also in observe these interactions uh, Mm -hmm. physically and concretely. And there is also the neuropsychoanalysis, which is also a very important uh, psychoanalytic community. And the third troubled community is the philosophically, culturally troubled community, which the main uh, group here is the relational approach, which with all the uh, you know the revolution it made in w- within psychoanalysis. I wanted to ask you. Um, thank you for for laying that out so clearly. Um, I you make an argument. Um, Amongst the many arguments you make in the book, but uh, you, you make an argument that uh, perhaps postmodern thinking um, might not keep the field um, alive and kicking, so to speak. That there might be a relationship between the postmodern critique, largely coming out of the relational school or util- utilizing sort of postmodern theory about um, you know subjectivity, intersubjectivity, thirdness. Um, the critique of truth, et cetera, that might might play an Im- might impact um, our field um, and, and make it less generative. I think that's a very interesting and key argument. Could you could you talk more about that? Well, that's a great question, and I I love to talk about. Do we have two or three hours? We have, you know, I mean, oh, oh, do you want me to extend the session? <laughs> well, uh, I'll try. I'll try to make it as brief as I can. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the thesis is that the most uh, prolific uh, period of time of psychoanalysis was not today, was not contemporary psychoanalysis, but mm-hmm. the modern era. The founders yeah. of the schools, like Winnicott, Cote, uh, Bion, and Freud, of course, and Klein, um, they were not interested in epistemology. They were not interested in philosophy. They were not interested in truth questions. They really thought that they know the truth, that they really discovered the truth. 
they thought that they can really know what happened, uh, what is going on in the mind of an infant three weeks old or six months old. And they didn't think mm-hmm. that what uh, their, their theory is, is a narrative or an option. They thought it is the truth itself. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we are sort of lucky that they were not interested in philosophy because if they knew how difficult it is and how complicated it is, almost impossible to claim truth that you really know what is going on in the mind of a three uh, weeks uh, infant three weeks old, I think they wouldn't have the balls and they wouldn't dare <laughs> to, to, um, to create such rich theories. So we are lucky that they didn't know it. We are lucky that they were not interested in philosophy. They were not, certainly were not postmodernists. They just wanted to um, share their knowledge with us, and they really thought that they discovered a fantastic and marvelous truth about the human infant, about uh, psychopathology, about uh, transference. And um, nowadays, I think it's impossible because no one has uh, no one dares to say. that he really can know what is going on in the mind of an infant. And no one can say mm-hmm. that, um, no one dares to say that he really knows what is, um, um, what is the human psyche in all its richness. Right. So, so that's a problem today, uh, because in the postmodern era, um, we don't like monolithic truth. We don't like grand theories anymore. And although the, uh, grand, the, the postmodern, um, um, the postmodern are, tr- are, are, are right, they have a, a good case here that truth is, you know, uh, is pluralistic and is, uh, you really cannot know the truth. What they did was, um, they didn't intend to do it, but the result was that we don't have any grand theories anymore. The last grand theories, grand narrative, was uh, self-psychology, and that was at the 80s. Now we have only, right. we have only right. local truth, small mm-hmm. truth. Interesting, though, but only uh-huh. local and small. You actually call this in the book, um, this is the most impoverished period, mm-hmm. I think you mean for theory, in the, in the history of psychoanalysis. And that if we were to put together a... a um, A, a dictionary, I think it is, or a book of, of, of you know, sort of new truths derived from the impact of postmodernism, it, I think you say it would be a very thin volume, a <laughs> yeah. very thin book. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty funny. I, I laughed when I, when I read that. I was like, whoa. I had never had that thought, but I was like, huh. Because, of course, the, in many ways, the relational um, tradition, you know, out of which your book is published from Rutledge. And I'm always in touch with Rutledge and the series that Lou, um, you know, that Lou Aaron, you know, uh, you know, works on editing is filled. I mean, the, the, the relational school is writing a lot, you know, they're really publishing a lot, but if you, but, but your argument is if that, that if we were to put, put certain, certain new ideas, um, sort of derived from the postmodern critique, We wouldn't have very much to um, to read. And right, they strange, are publishing. It's very strange because I most of the books I get are from the relationals. You know, mm-hmm. like nobody else is publishing. You know, not quite, but like yeah, comparatively. 
They are doing a great job. They are publishing a lot. I myself am a, am a, a relational analyst and I am uh, mm -hmm. a member of the IARPP. Oh, you are? Uh-huh. Yes, but the, tr the, the problem is that um, look at these wonderful, uh, fantastic dictionaries of the uh, Klein and Thought or Laplanche yeah. and Pontelli, the Dictionary mm -hmm. of Psychoanalysis and mm -hmm. the Winnicott Dictionary. They are all Hinshelwood, yeah. yes, and Hinshelwood, right? The Klein in the theory, and the, these are mm -hmm. all very rich, and there are many concepts there. Now, mm -hmm. so in order to say that there is this, a psychic phenomenon, the, these are all books about psychic phenomenon, dictionaries about psychic phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm. You have to have a, a truth, a truth theory. You have to think that right. there is something there exists that is, um, is, is true, and uh, it's not pluralistic, it's not a metaphor, it's not a narrative, it is there. Well, remember the moment when, I mean, I you know, was not, not trained as a Kleinian, but I remember, certainly have read a lot of Klein, and having to wrap my mind around the idea that the infant is born with an ego. What? That took me like two years, you know, but that's like, if you, you, if you don't accept that as a truth, you, you, the, nothing holds together. You exactly. know what I mean in, in, in following her theory. So there are certain, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trained as, as a modern analyst, and so Spotnitz has the idea that schizophrenia is caused. I mean, this is a shorthand, but the by by the attack of uh, by attacking the self rather than external objects depletes the ego. I mean, that's you either accept that as real and everything else works from there, or you're lost. Exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I once asked a, a, a Kleinian, a devoted Kleinian, listen, do you really think that the infant attacks his mother when he's three weeks or one month old? Uh, does he really, uh, you know, uh, bite, try, has a fantasy of biting her? <laughs> or do you just uh, use it as sort of a, a metaphor to understand right. your adult patients? And he right. said, "No, this really happens. This is this really <laughs> right. this is really the human infant. That's how he behaves. Right. So for them, right. it's not a metaphor. It's it's true. That's what happens yeah. out there in the world. Right, 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 right. And so relational and don't have this concept of things that really happen in the world because everything is intersubjective, and and uh, everything right. is you know construed. Rashomon." Exactly, exactly. So yeah. we lost a yeah. very creative power, a very creative source in psychoanalytic, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, building a theory. We, we mm -hmm. took the force of it, but, you know, we, it, it's, it's naive to think that we really can go back to that period of time of the modernist and believe in that, uh, right. um, believe that it's true again. Right, right, right. I mean, but, but you're arguing, I think, in the book for something that... Um, there's a, a feminist philosopher, a queer, a queer uh, critical th thinker named Diana Fuss, and she has, and uh, she put, uses this phrase, strategic essentialism. I think it's her phrase. I read it so long ago, but it stayed with me. Like this, to use essence strategically, mm -hmm. um, and and I thought this this book is in praise of a little bit. Uh, your book is in praise. Of, of the notion of, you know, of, of go for some essence, go for, go for some truth and, um, and, and, and let's see, let's see what, what evolves and, and, um, can, can grow out of, um, a little essentialism. However, 
you know, the postmodern critique within psychoanalysis, I was thinking this as I read the book, I was like, it's kind of like the superego. Like the critique is now like, oh, that's binary thinking. Stop it. I mean, I can't, I, I, I will tell you, I have sat in places where I've listened to people who say like, but that's a binary, you know, a construction of thought and Bob, and I'm like, oh my, so it's sort of like the new watchdog. Mm-hmm. Like if when people get too close to, um, saying something that is more essentialist. And in fact, did you read Galit uh, Atlas's, uh, this is, you know, your Israeli American mm-hmm. colleague, yes. um, who wrote The Enigma of Desire. Uh-huh. She really, she attempts to write about an essential truth of the body, um, and, uh, and pregnancy. And I loved, I loved the book for that. Cause I said, who, mm-hmm. who in this school comes out and says anything that is, that is, has a quote unquote bedrock? Anyway, it's, you know, and her book created great waves, um, I think, within the relational thinking. But it's a book that really puts forth an, essential, an essentialist idea. So Exactly. The lead does think. it, and she, and she does it in a very eloquent way, and I, I, mm-hmm. I was really impressed by it. And uh, Galit is, is relational, and many relational have these, you know, um, sort of mini-theories, Mini theories mm-hmm. like you can take uh, Donnell Stern with the unformulated experience, which is, yep. you know, a, a beautiful conceptualization and very mm-hmm. helpful one. But mm-hmm. these are small truth, mini truth, you know, they are not mm-hmm. compared, we cannot compare them to the grand theories like a big jigsaw uh, of Winnicott or of Klein that everything has to do with everything, you know, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's a big narrative. Um, in those days, in the modern era, or even in, with, within fascinated uh, analysts today, if you ask an analyst, tell me please, how do you think the infant develops? Um, <laughs> if he tells you that, if he answers this question, you have a very good idea of how that analyst works, what is his technique and mm-hmm. how does what is his transference uh, perception? How does he he views his the the transference? You know, because everything is connected to everything. While nowadays mm-hmm. you take from here and you take from there. So I I don't do not want to to uh, you know to to downsize the uh, huge contribution of the relational approach. You know the uh, mm-hmm. the, right. the, the the fascinated school are actually the the super ego which when their relational approach was more you know much more you know with with humor and it didn't take itself so seriously and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's not it's it was not so pompous as the classical uh, um, right. analyst. And it was democratic and pluralistic. And, we, you know, we had to do that revolution. There was no way. But it came with a price. And that's what I'm talking about in, that, in, the, in my book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, you also you, you make an argument about the fascinated communities, um, that they all have um, certain qualities. One, of, one, though, that's very prominent is, is a sort of charismatic, um, a charismatic leader. As I read through the book, I was like, well, but, I mean, had Stephen Mitchell lived, don't you think he would have been a charismatic leader? I was curious about the, your, your argument, because it seemed that, you know, that they're a philosophically troubled community, um, but they, but he was, he was charismatic. I mean, the way, I've never met him, but I know people who speak about him, you could feel he had a charismatic, uh, impact, no? Mm 
I met Steve and he was very charismatic and he, he was, you yeah. know, he was a natural leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also was a very nice, uh, nice and friendly person. And mm-hmm. um, he helped to um, found my institute, Tel Aviv Institute for oh, really? Psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. Yes, he gave us uh-huh. big help. Um, mm-hmm. But Steve did not want to be a founder of a school. He really said that, you know. So mm-hmm. it's not enough to be charismatic. You have to be first charismatic, but you have to be a founder of a school which you think that uh, a theory of that school is a true theory. And Steve mm-hmm. never meant to do that. And in, in fact, he really um, helped us in, in, in that disillusionment that I'm talking about of the fascination <laughs> of psychoanalytic yeah. schools. So he never meant to be a founder of a school that was not his intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, I, I actually didn't know that, but I, I guess following your argument, it does, it does make sense. Um, you also, you also make a, a, a interesting comment that all of the fascinated schools hold to a quote unquote, one person, um, psychology sort of model. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking how, com- I mean, that's interesting. That seems quite true, but and can you can you help us to understand why that has been the case? And for for listeners who might not know the one person versus the two person model, what we're talking about is you know are there two subjectivities in the room, or is there the analyst of you know thinking about what the patient is bringing, and you know as if the the transference is is pure and not related to the analyst countertransference, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. So so but why are the fascinated communities? Why do they tend? Toward a one-person um, psychological model. Well, if you know. <laughs> well, yes. Um, one person. If you think that a fascinated school, first of all, it thinks that the theory is a, is true. It corresponds with reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not really intersubjective, right? It's not really relational. Right. It's just exists out there in the world, and this is a very uh, one-person psychology uh, uh, vision. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, many of these schools think that the, uh, uh, the main thing, uh, the main aim of psychoanalysis is to, um, uh, reveal the unconscious fantasies of, uh, the patient. And this is a very one person mm-hmm. psychology ideology because you think that it's the, the, the unconscious is out there to be revealed. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas in a two person psychology, the, both analyst and patient uh, construe what the meaning of 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 the analyst's mind and of the patient's mind. So um, it really cannot be part of 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 that fascinated theory. Yeah, you're fascinated mm-hmm. by the theory. Well, whereas uh, in two-person psychology, you're you're really fascinated by the process of what's happened, what can what can happen between analyst and patient. Uh-huh. 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 I mean, what you also, um, I have these, all these quotes that I was like, wow, they're just these statements that were so crystalline and surprising at the same time. The unconscious is a product of a one person approach. Now I've wondered for a long time and I've asked questions like, so, you know, where, whither goes the unconscious, you know, in, 
uh, you know, like unformulated experience or whither goest, you know, in, in you know, thinking through, you know, friends who are, you know, interpersonalists, where is the, you know, the, the unconscious? And you actually say it's the product of a one person approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people would say, well, no unconscious, no psychoanalysis, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you hear that. What is, what is that state? And a lot of people will, will say that. They'll say, well, if you're not de- working with the unconscious, then you're not, you know, you're not doing analytic work. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that I'm sure you, you've heard that. I mean, what, what's your reply to that? Well, uh, I think, that? I think there is, there's a really, um, an, an inherent contradiction between, uh, contemporary psychoanalysis and the, un- the classical idea of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Because the unconscious is something that is not known to the patient. Right. But it has to be known in therapy. And um, how can it be known um, to, in therapy when it is not known to the patient? So, you know, there, um, someone has to know that. And the, and the postmodern and contemporary psychoanalysis, they don't want to uh, be... Um, to, um, um, to perceive the analyst as, as one who has monopoly over the unconscious of the patient. But mm-hmm. then someone has to know that, and who, who would that person be? Right. And <laughs> uh, who would that person be? <laughs> and so there, there, I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, there is sort of a neglect, uh, even in, uh, in ten, one that is intended, uh, in, intentional neglect in relational um, in relational view about the unconscious, you know, because or there is something that they really did not make their their mind up about that. It's interesting that, um, if we take the intersubjective theory of uh, Stolero and uh, yes. Atwood and um, mm-hmm. and uh, Donna Orange here. There you see um, there you see a very interesting thing because they have a very detailed um, description of the unconscious with many types of unconscious. Yes. I think yes. that was a reply on uh, Coates' critique that Coates did not emphasize enough the unconscious, so they sort of, you know, answered mm-hmm. and made a very detailed approach. But I think it's also the contradiction is still um, still there inherent because how can be there how can there be an unconscious in an intersubjective milieu and intersubjective encounter someone has to mm-hmm. know that unconscious or someone has to have the tools to to get to there so it's really we're really going back to one person psychology so the unconscious is basically a one person psychology idea huh well do you think that this is a little a little bit off topic it's not just particular to your book but i just had this thought so so the role that thirdness plays I'm just yeah. I'm going to be interviewing Jessica Benjamin um, shortly, and I'm thinking rereading a lot of her her writings, and I'm like, okay, so thirdness is this unconscious that the analyst and patient have together. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, is that is is is? I wonder if you think does it serve to sort of as a not a stand-in. I don't mean it's substitutive, but sort of in the same in the same place that in a one-person psychology, the unconscious has is the thirdness. Yes, yes, I think you're right. I think it's one of the um it's one of the ideas that um sort of um try to solve that gap that I'm talking about between contemporary mm-hmm. psychoanalysis, it's still psychoanalysis, which means that the unconscious must be something mm-hmm. 
that is, you know, is still vital and important, but mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to retreat to classical psychoanalysis. And the third is sort of, you know, um, a partial solution for that problem. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it feels that way when I it's like it's not mine, it's it's not not yours, it's not mine, it's ours, right? But it's still something that is ineffable, you know, has an ineffable um erratic uh, you know, kind of a you know, Benjaminian almost like some sort of a quality to it when reading Ogden and Ben and and when I say Benjaminian, I mean Walter, but anyway, speaking with <laughs> Jessica Benjamin, another Benjaminian, you know, kind of, kind of quality. It's just, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, be, I believe in thirdness. I totally get it. I'm still sort of more of a fascinated one person person, but, um, you know, but I guess I'm always looking for places where we're saying something similar or to find shared ground. Um, that seems, you know, for for my own reasons, that's that's important to me. Uh, part of what why we do new books in psychoanalysis is, you know, to sort of open communication um, amongst people who don't all think the same thing. You know what I mean? And we don't. Um, you know what? I was thinking in reading this book that that you know art that many in the field, aside from like an Eric Kandel who got so upset he left, right? Mm -hmm. Um, left the field, but but there is a lot of hostility, and I have this hostility in myself too toward data. Um, and and I wanted to ask you if you had thoughts like what what if we, you know, what what if we got against data? Will data just get rid of all the different fascinated communities? I mean, is are we at risk of being uh, perishing if we we go after quote unquote data? <laughs> Why do we hate it? <laughs> <laughs> well, help me. <laughs> well, we <laughs> we hate it because um, analysts find it. Uh, first of all, analysts do not take any interest in empirical research, and um, one of. <laughs> You know, they're, they're just not interested. Uh, by the way, not just analysts, but, but many psychotherapists from many other schools are not mm -hmm. interested in empirical research. It has many reasons, but one of the, um, one of the chapter of the book really, you know, concerned that and try to, yeah. try to understand that phenomenon. Why are, why are we not interested in empirical research? Why mm -hmm. are we not mm -hmm. interested in other, other disciplines or other psychotherapies? Totally. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're, you're, your argument about um, Kohut and Carl Rogers, mm -hmm. I was like, what? I've always thought that. I was always like, he's a Rogerian, <laughs> but but without, you know. So so we also don't um, leave a often leave a good um, footnote trail, you know, or our footnotes aren't as uh, aren't as um, I, you know aren't as complete as they as they might be, uh, which is interesting um we don't know we don't cite you know and it's not so much plagiarism i don't think but uh, but i wonder about it i'm like how come we get away with that other disciplines i don't think you get away with that mm -hmm. you know well well <laughs> these are two um very important questions that i deal with for well first of all the the the, the fascinated community centers around one theory or one or two theory like an analyst can be can combine between Winnicott and Coate, or be just Kleinian, or be Kleinian and Bionian. It doesn't really matter. Right. What 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 matters is that that the the theory um, really is is the source of a rich and complex narrative, an overarching narrative, 
And this narrative is very rich and is very fulfilling. It answers mm-hmm. uh, many of the questions, many of the um, uh, puzzling questions about the patients. And it's sort of, um, the analyst sort of gets stuck in, in his narrative. And um, the, mm-hmm. the narrative is highly detailed. It offers many options for giving meaning to clinical material. It's right. very satisfactory to use it. And so the yes. analyst, there is no hunger. It's so good. Right. And, <laughs> and there is no hunger for things that is uh, outside that narrative, that are extender, external to the narrative. So a, an, right. a fascinated analyst can really live his entire professional lifetime without feeling even once that he's in need of anything other than the psychoanalytic formulation, which he's right. so uh, familiar with. It's like like never having to eat food that you don't like, you know, it's like you you open up the menu and it's always everything that you want is in there, you know, it's like never a calf's liver or something that you don't like. It's always like a perfect menu and the patient is going to fit within, uh, you know, a, a certain theoretical menu. And there is satisfaction. I mean, you can be very satiated, yeah. you know, it really is, it can feel nourishing, like, look, I found it. <laughs> Right. And, and I'm not ju- just saying that to mock the analyst because the, the narratives no, themselves, no. the theories themsel- themselves are very rich, very profound, yes. and they produce a lot of meaning. And mm-hmm. I, 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 the, another thing that I, I, I must mention is that uh, in the book, I'm, 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 I'm saying that uh, this is not really very different from what happens in science because scientists uh-huh. also have their own scientific theory they they are loyal to they adhere to and mm-hmm. um they uh they don't drop the scientific theory just because uh, and uh, some uh, research so uh, contradicting results you know all the right. post positivist uh, uh philosophers of science like Larry Loudon or or uh, mm-hmm. Kuhn or Lakatos right. they they show us that scientists are very indoctrinated to their theories. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing because if you're not indoctrinated to a theory, you will not develop it. You will not become, right. you know, uh, very creative within that frame of theory. So uh, there is really a good thing about loyalty, devotion, and even indoctrination. And my whole mm-hmm. book is really a, a defense of the fascinated communities, why they are important for us, why fascination is important at all. Because... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You cannot um, develop a new theory. You cannot raise a child. You know, you cannot open a new business without fascination. That's right. That's right. It's uh, no- nothing. Nothing happens uh, without fascination. Right. But and yet, there's. Go ahead. The, the danger is that fascination will be uh, uh, will will just act alone. So, beside the fascination communities, there must be. Troubled communities, and th- this combination is is the best thing for a discipline to survive and to uh, and you know to thrive. Well, you know, it, I you know, living here in uh, in the United States, where we're thinking a lot about fascism mm-hmm. and fascination. You know that that it, to break to break up. I mean, fascism is about fascination. I mean, it's really, and I think that when people get troubled by, you know, sort of monolithic ideas, you know, and they become troubled and they try to break it up and loosen 
and loosen the grip. And certainly within, um, you know, the, the short history of, of psychoanalysis, I mean, we act this out and repeat this again and again. But your idea is that, you know, that's okay. Like that's how it goes, you know, and that, that out of that, um, can it, that can be a fer, like a fertile process um, as long as as long as it continues as a as a as long as it continues as a process um, and because we do have a lot of splitting right I mean you know analysts who haven't talked to each other in thirty years you know we 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 I meet I meet them all the time you know oh yeah I used to know him but he became a this and I don't believe that you know um, how, you know how to sort of resolve. Um, resolve the splits, uh, which is, um, but without becoming boring and, and, you know, having nothing new to say. I mean, your, your book is an argument. It argues that we need the fascination. We, we have to keep it afloat. Um, right. Although I completely so, agree with what you said, that it's also very dangerous. It can lead to fascism, to tel- to- mm-hmm. totalitarian, uh, you know, a state of mind. And we know how the psychoanalytic institutes, uh, were once handled with the very, uh, yes. they were very authoritarian and mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. very even corrupted, you know, if you read the history of uh, books about their history of the psychoanalytic institutes. Um, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's sad, you know, it's really sad. But, but today I think that the fascinated communities are really weakened. They are weak, much mm-hmm. more weaker than they, they once were. Because postmodernism right. is very uh, on a high level, so mm-hmm. um, fascinated communities they they know that it's not democratic and they know that it's not the right thing to uh, say that you know I believe that it's true. Uh, in, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they really pay a lip service and they say how they're you know pluralistic and they're open minded. But in, mm-hmm. I think inside their heart, many analysts still believe in um, in uh, in the correspondent theory of truth and and in the monolithic truth. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they are much more weak mm-hmm. than they were, I think it's it's a good thing for us today. So there is these these analysts who will still continue to think that what they think is true, and we want them to think so because they, that's what right. will make them creative. And beside them, along them, there will be the trouble analysts, and that's that's a very good combination, as I, I write in my book. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I was thinking about the institute that I graduated from, which I think has been a fascinated community, which is is run um, now by uh, Mimi Kroll. And her, she's been very influenced by very different um, psychoanalytic thinkers and, in fact, has changed. So we, we always had a final paper, which was a research paper. The idea at the institute was that psychoanalysis is a model of research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that the psychoanalytic method is a research method in and in and of itself. So we did these research papers. But recently, you know, she's been like, you know, let's let's let students write for their final papers and see and, and sort of see more where they go. Because as you write in the end of the book, like the institutes have to take a different position in order to generate new and com- and compelling knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and uh, I think, and I think that that's that's really an important point. Like actually risking, you know, risking losing everything that you've ever believed in to allow something new to grow, um, is you know, is not is certainly not an easy thing uh, for anyone to do, especially somebody who heads an institute. You know, um, to allow that room. Um, 
So your argument is, I, you know, that, that the troubled communities have shaken things up enough that um, people in the fascinated institutes are, I think, giving uh, candidates a little bit more um, breathing room, um, you know, for, for sure. Um, I wanted, uh, you know, we have a little bit more time. I, look, it, it, I really sense a connection between you and John Mills. I was not, not surprised, but um, interested to hear that you two are working on a publication or, an, or an, on a text. Is that right? Yes. Together? Yeah. Because I really, I thought you and John both in your sort of thinking through the, you know, the, the, the good, the good, so, the good parts and the more perilous parts of the postmodern impact. Um, do you care to just let us know what it is that you're working on next? Yes, sure. Uh, I met John through his uh, critique of the relational approach, and he's uh, mm-hmm. he's a, 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 a troubled analyst um, mm-hmm. and um, a, a very eloquent one. And I think his um, his um, his contribution in, in, uh, in the philosophy of psychoanalysis is is, is enormous. Is very very important. Yeah. And when yep. now um, what we're doing is uh, we are editing together a book about innovations in psychoanalysis. Um, mm-hmm. We want to show that uh, psychoanalysis is very updated and innovative and creative. And we um, uh, asked um, authors from various disciplines um, to uh, contribute to this book and to show what in their... Um, specific school, like the Kleinian school and uh, and neuropsychoanalysis and self-psychology, what is the most innovating contribution to that, um, to the theory, what happened in recent years to show that psychoanalysis is really, you know, um, uh, relevant today and uh, that Mm -hmm. people are still developing it. It's it's not that they are just uh, working on uh, on the past or on classical accounts, and I think mm-hmm. um, I think the book will show that. Mm-hmm. It seems like it must be very satisfying because it seems that in fact the that book that you're working on would answer um, or sort of um, provide a you know the, the, like slake your thirst. I mean, you seem to be hungry in your argument for um, you know sort of showing a. a sort of a third position like that, you know, we're within psychoanalysis, what's new under the sun. I often feel, and often other hosts will say in new books in psychoanalysis, there, there are no new ideas in psychoanalysis. And there's, there is often that feeling. So I think that it's, you know, this book that you're putting together, um, I don't know when you guys are going to be done with it, but will be very useful, Um, a compendium, Mm -hmm. you know, to see what's, what is new you know, uh, in, in the different schools. Um, I, so I imagine it's sort of like a, you know, a bomb in Gilead, like a, a mm-hmm. gift, you know, after this book to move to that, uh, for you. Um, yes. Well, I think, I think as uh, psychoanalysis is, is, um, despite what people think is in a constant, it's going a constant change and it's one of its great strengths. And that's because of the, these troubled, uh, um, communities and troubled analysts and I also want to mention that, and one of uh, the chapters of the book is dedicated to it, that within the fascinated communities, there are also 
a lot of change that is going on because these fascinated mm -hmm. communities, you know, develop their their own theory, and um, you know, they're they are tense. They have a tension between being loyal to the original formulations and being new, and they do not want to lose the contact with the original founder. So they always, you know. Um, um, say and describe and give him credit for what they're doing. Like if you take Betty Joseph, right, for right, example. Right. Betty Joseph, yes. perfect example. Yes, yeah. but there yeah. is a lot of change that is going on within psychoanalysis. And it's one of the strange of psychoanalysis that it can be updated and relevant to the world as it is today. When the world was with its scientific ethos, when it's very scientific, so psychoanalysis was scientific. When the, the world was postmodern, mm -hmm. psychoanalysis became postmodern. Now the world is more religion and more spiritual and we have this branch of in, within psychoanalysis that it's more religious and more spiritual. So it mm -hmm. sort of, you know, uh, can um, update and adapt itself to the worldviews and what's going on and to be very relevant. And the, and and to add to that, though, I mean, psychoanalysis is certainly porous in that way. It can 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 absorb um, changes in the culture and in in the ethos. But on the other hand, psychoanalysis—you know—we always say, "Oh, psychoanalysis is in, experience." We experience ourselves as imperiled, as a field in peril. How many times have people said, "It's over. Freud is dead." Mm -hmm psychoanalysis is dead, but they can't seem to kill it. But what, what, what role, whoever they are, you know, and, uh, you know, and whoever, whoever they are coming from the outside or, or even, you know, from, from the inside, what is the role of peril? I mean, have you thought about the role of like the, of peril, um, for psychoanalysis and the, the fear, fear of dying, um, <laughs> or being killed off? Well, it was buried so, so uh, many times, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. but you know, it has this. Um, I I remember seeing in the um, New York Times when was it? At the Times, I think, at the eighties, is Freud dead? You know. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, people keep saying that it's dead, and but you know, I read a a very um, very interesting survey about um, more than two thousand therapists in North America, that mm -hmm. um, most of them are. Uh, I think two-thirds are using psychoanalytic um, ideas and use psychoanalytic um, uh, techniques uh, to uh, help their patients. They, they integrate mm -hmm. them with CBT and, uh, and other methods, but it's still uh, living and kicking, and, um, and it's still there, and it's, it's still very, um, um, very dominant. Although it's not as dominant as it was before at the 40s and, and 50s, but I, st mm -hmm. I think it's still dominant. But, you know, the, um, the, uh, the fear of dying was uh, a fear that was uh, from, the from the first day of psychoanalysis. It, uh, <laughs> the, the fixation that are we, you know, are we just loyal to Freud or do we have something new to say? It was it, re it really preoccupied analysts um, throughout the, um, yeah. the, the 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 entire life of the discipline. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's it's funny because doesn't Lowald say something about, you know, in his paper on um, the resolution of the Oedipal, that you have to be willing at some level to kill your parents in order to create a new life, you know. But the, but analysts, uh, you know, we're very frightened to sort of, we want to keep connected. We're scared of being excommunicated, you know. Uh, we need our institutes, um, you know, in order to... Um, to to be a part of a community. I mean, this work is isolating, you know, and it, it it's not necessarily good for you, you know, to be outside of a community when you're when you're doing your work. Um, but it's it's how to stay how to stay connected and yet do something new and not be um, not be thrown out as a result. I mean, it's really it's, it's a it's a dilemma in um, in between parents and children, and it's a dilemma between. <laughs> Between um, sort of senior analysts and, you know, the the up-and-coming generation. Um, I think we have to stop for today. But before we do, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to let the audience know about um, about your book? Um, well, I think I think what the book is, um, is, is about, and that's what I want people to stay with, is, um, is the idea that we... Um, we should make psychoanalysis contemporary and new and relevant, but the past is also very important. The tradition is also very important, and mm-hmm. um, only the combination, only if we we can, you know, combine these two and cherish the past and cherish the tradition without, uh, you know, being um, without putting it to um, without making it ridiculous, and mm-hmm. um, and we can. And we can sort of, you know, accept there are different people who are doing different things, and there are people that are really um, believing in um, that their theories are true, and they also have a place, and they are very important. And beside that, there should be people that sh- should critique these uh, th- these groups and communities and make new things and say that it's uh, that we we have to have new solutions. This mm-hmm. thing that is very tense and very hostile sometimes to each other <laughs> is is, yeah. is is a very is a very precious thing for us for our discipline. <laughs> yes, a good a good fight. Right, exactly. <laughs> a good, a good fight, and then you have sex afterwards, and you move on. You know, <laughs> so nothing like makeup sex. You know, so yeah, so that's what we're aiming for in psychoanalysis: keeping the sex, but keeping sexuality in psychoanalysis, as Green, uh, <laughs> Green, <laughs> Green was urging us to do. Um, okay, so um, listeners, um, we're going to sign off now. The next interview I'm going to do will be. Jessica Benjamin and her new book, which I don't have the title, but it's on recognition theory. And uh, then Frederick Cruz, who um, uh, doesn't uh, like Freud very much, but um, I'm uh, still looking forward to uh, to talking with him and seeing what he has to say. He's been writing about Freud for years. Um, so until then, I uh, want to thank um, Aner uh, for visiting with us. Um, we will look forward to talking to you and John Mills perhaps when um, the, uh, the, new, the, the next publication um, is out. And um, so thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much, Tracy.